Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Allie on the Run show. I'm your host, Allie Feller, and this is episode 40. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Leah Lagos. I first met Dr. Lagos last year when I was writing a story for Allure about exercise addiction. She had so much good stuff to say that I knew I needed to have her on the show, so here we are. Dr. Lagos is a sports psychologist in New York City, and on this episode, we get into everything from performance anxiety and the mental health issues athletes of all levels face to, of course, exercise addiction, what it is, what some telltale signs of exercise addiction are, and what to do if you or someone you know and love may be experiencing some or all of those signs. Now, on episode 22 of the Alley on the Run show, I talked a bit about my own past with exercise addiction and what it was like for me having a disordered relationship with fitness. I think it's really easy for me to look back on that time period now and see that, yes, I had a real problem, but I never saw a professional during that time because exercise is a good thing, right? So being addicted to working out couldn't possibly be bad. But like any addiction, being seriously hooked on exercise to the point where it disrupts your everyday life or an unplanned day without exercise is enough to send you into a tailspin, that's a real problem. Dr. Lagos and I also talked about the role social media plays in exercise addiction. So often I think we see people tackling these really intense workouts and posting about them naturally every day and those feats are often met with comments like you're so badass or hashtags like fitspiration anyway we'll get into it that's enough for me let's hear what dr lagos has to say about all of this dr leah lagos welcome to the alley on the run show hi alley i am so excited to have you here and As with any good run, we start the Alley on the Run show with a warm-up. So, Dr. Lagos, please tell us who you are, where you're from, and what it is that you do. Ali, my name is Dr. Leah Lagos. I am a clinical sport and performance psychologist. I work with athletes and peak performers around the world from ages 6 years old to over 60 years old to optimize health and performance. Okay, so what exactly does that mean? Well, there's... Several different reasons people would seek out my assistance. It could be performance in business. It could be performance as a runner wanting to increase it or improve it, overcoming a slump, overcoming an injury, getting their championship mindset back, learning to control their thoughts as well as their physiology to improve race performance. That's awesome. I need you to be on call for me at all times. (laughs) That would be great. Um, So how did you get into this field? Because I think that's so interesting. And obviously, that's why we have you on the show. It's something I'm fascinated by. So what drew you to this career? You know, it's funny. Ali, the one thing I've known my entire life is that I wanted to be a sports psychologist from as soon as I learned what psychology was about, which was about nine years old. And before even the advent of, uh, you know, or the the Birch sports psychology field, I, I knew from my own participation in sports and athletics as a female who's also tall and, and knowing how much sports impacted my life, how I felt about myself, my confidence, my ability to feel that discipline resulted in positive effects. And it was something that I wanted to help others transfer the benefits of into their own lives. How cool. What sports did you play growing up? Growing up, I was a runner, and then in college, I was a rower. Oh, wow. See, 
All right, I need to talk about rowing for a second. This is off topic, but I recently started <laughs> taking Orange Theory classes, that the group fitness class. My hands are so torn up from that rowing machine. How do I fix that? It's a tough sport. You don't. You don't fix it. You just get tougher. Okay, well, my hands are not cute right now, so I'm glad you can't see them. Um, okay, so tell me a little bit. I, I love that you've wanted to do this forever. So what was the schooling like to get to where you are now? It was a long process. So, uh, you know, of course, there's undergrad and, and in between undergrad and grad school, I, I worked with the United States Olympics Committee for an internship for a six month period. I worked for the PGA Tour for an internship for six months. Um, I did some work with the NBA as an internship as well. Um, so I really wanted to gain as much exposure in the sports environment before I actually immersed myself into kind of learning how to help people from a mental perspective um, manage anxiety, depression, eating, body image, um, all in an effort to to boost performance. So after undergrad, I, I took the two years to kind of dangle my feet into different sports immersive experiences, which was awesome. And I highly recommend for anyone that's looking to follow a similar path in, in terms of being a sports psychologist. And then um, I went to school at Rutgers for my doctorate. And, and it also includes getting a master's along the way. Um, it is not a short process. It, it takes approximately seven years uh, of grads training and then internship and postdoc before you can actually practice as an independent practitioner. But gosh, it was worth it. It was my, my lifelong goal so far. <laughs> and, and, you know, it brings me such joy every day to, to do what I do. That's awesome. So I know you work with athletes. I, I love that you said from six to 60. And yeah. I want to go back to that. Who are the six-year-olds you're working with? That's amazing. <laughs> well, it's it's few and far between these days. These days, I'm, I'm a bit more focused in kind of competitive, slightly older <laughs> athletes. But, uh, you know, over the last decade, I've had the joy and, and gift of, of working with some extremely talented young uh, golf and tennis players. Six years old was the wow. youngest, but but he was a prodigy. And, yeah. and boy, boy, this six-year-old not only in terms of skill set, but also in terms of his verbal and mental ability was was a little George Costanza. He was. Oh my <laughs> he he could joke with you. He could keep keep up a conversation. He was just just an incredible incredible performer, and has gone on to do just great things with his life. How cool! What was I doing when I was six? I was like <laughs> sitting in dirt and sandboxes, probably. <laughs> but good for him. Um, okay, so you you work with all kinds of different athletes, and I know you've mentioned before that your focus is on or or something that you often talk about is depression and anxiety when it comes to sports and performance. And mm -hmm. I feel like we hear so many people preaching that exercise helps treat symptoms of depression and anxiety. But I'm curious your take on sort of what that relationship is, because I know that I in the past have felt feelings of depression, anxiety that were actually caused by exercise. And, and that was yes. more along the exercise addiction thing, which we will get to. Uh, but can you talk to me a little bit about the relationship between depression and anxiety and sports? Sure. You know, a lot of people use sports as a way to modulate or optimize their mood and just their physiology. And that's a beautiful piece, uh, you know, and 
and um, find such satisfaction in being able to regulate how they feel and what they think and, and how they approach their life by engaging in physical exertion. But on the other hand, there can be a place where disappointment occurs or, or um, there's so much investment into the, the exercise activity or physical activity itself um, that, that it can produce feelings of melancholy or anxiety. And, and oftentimes that's when athletes come to see me. So what are some of the ways that you find athletes experiencing different mental health issues? Are there certain things that are most common? Is it performance anxiety? Is it, um, you know, you hit the nail on the head. Okay. Let's talk about it. (laughs) Anxiety. And it's, it's so normal. Every athlete will feel anxiety at some point in their training process. Otherwise they're not doing it correctly. (laughs) And it's my job to teach them. This is super normal. And, and we can use this as, as a way to become even more powerful as performers. So, so taking that challenge and making it the best gift possible. And, and then we, we work together on a training process. You know, for some people it can be as short as 10 weeks for other people uh, you know, I, I've worked with several Olympians that have, that have stuck with me even beyond the Olympics. <laughs> um, and, and, and we've worked on many things starting, they came in for anxiety, but, um, just, just dealing with the ebbs and flows of performance in life. So, um, anxiety, whether it's, it's sports related, whether it's relationship related, whether it's, career-related oftentimes can manifest in the domain of sports, even if it isn't just exclusively caused by the physical activity. So, and I'm sure this is a weighted question. So let's say I'm about to start training for a half marathon and I'm really excited and I really care about this race. I want a PR. I want this to, you know, I want it to all go perfectly because (laughs) of course I do. So I say to myself, I'm going to bring on a sports psychologist to help me through the way. Where would you start with me? Well, you and I would have a first session, uh, simply an evaluation. I'd ask you a lot of questions, Allie, to get to understand your personality, medical history, background, uh, experiences in, in training as well as education. And then we would sit down and chart out some goals, both uh, personal as well as performance, that, that we want to work on together throughout our training. Um, and, and based upon on that initial meeting, the last 15 minutes or so, I give you my treatment recommendations from um, kind of an integrative view, both um, psychological, physiological, and sometimes even physical. And and I'll I'll send certain people um, to have blood work done, and and then we'll even add nutritional pieces to it and dietary supplements as needed to help optimize the brain and the body. Okay, so yeah, this isn't just like a download headspace and meditate at night. This is like a full total body thing. And and you bring up a really important point, which is I think in the 1980s, a lot of people considered the realm of sports psychology as just a mental, mental training. Okay, we're going to sit down, we're going to set goals, we're going to work on our self-talk and visualize. Um, but it's, it's truly evolved into a mind and body training simultaneously to the point I, I often say in interviews, and I just mentioned it on Sports Illustrated where I interviewed last week, that, that we're really turning into a paradigm of sports psychophysiology where we train the mind and the body simultaneously. 
for the most optimal results. Well, I love that. I I I wish I had been that six year old kid. I mean, forget about the golf, but I I grew up dancing and and there was so much like competitive dancing. There were so many mind games that came into play and and I think that everyone should have a sports psychologist at their disposal. I think every team should have one. Uh, do you work with teams or is it is everything you do just individual? At this point in time, I, I work with individuals that just come to my office. From time to time, I'll work with teams. Um, but in terms of dancing, I, I have a client and, and she's fine with me discussing our work together and it's giving me permission. She was the principal dancer of Martha Graham. And, and um, we work together on, on helping her just optimize her performance. And wow, what, what powerful um, kinds of portrayals of how shifting your mind and your body manifests in, in your, your physical prowess. I mean, she's just such a, an incredible dancer to begin with. Um, but there were, there were certain pieces that were difficult for her and, and that um, – going through the process of, of sports psychology and, and particularly our work with her physiology as, as well as her kind of mental approach really helped to optimize um, her ability to dance at her peak level. That's awesome. So something that I feel like I see a lot is that some athletes very much excel under pressure and others kind of crack and crumble under it. I am someone who doesn't do so great with pressure. Like I've had to basically get rid of my running watch. I've had to Mm. like just totally zone out. Whereas other people, I feel like they see that pressure. Like my husband, he he is so fueled by pressure and that's when he performs Mm. his best. Whereas I just kind of like crawl into a corner and hide. So is that a physiological thing or what is your take on um, how pressure affects performance? Well, I have a term called physiological giftedness. And what I mean by that is certain people are wired, Ali, to have greater sensitivity than other people. And and would you say you're you're somebody who senses other people's emotions or feelings fairly easily? Yes, 100%. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so you may have what I call a physiological gift where you carry emotions closer to your chest and it makes you and it interestingly enough given your kind of expertise and specialty in the area of communication and podcasting it makes a lot of sense um but but these people in life tend to have this exquisite ability to connect (laughs) uh given their their ability to perceive and feel the world a little more deeply than others so those are the people who i've also found tend to be a little more challenged um, by feelings of stress or anxiety. It's not necessarily choking, but just that they feel the experience of anxiety more deeply. An orthopedic surgeon, for instance, is the opposite end. They tend to be people who, not all, but, but uh, many of them just don't feel the world as deeply, and it gives them a gift, which is what? <laughs> they can conduct surgery with, without a lot of kind of the physiological responses that would bypass conscious thinking for someone who's highly sensitive. Yeah, no, I would see someone injured and I would cry for them and I would hug them and be sad and I wouldn't want to cut them open because it would be sad. Like, oh yeah, I get that. Yes, (laughs) and these these are the people um, who who oftentimes need a little extra training on how to control their physiology. All the positive self-talk to you, Ali, in the world wouldn't make the entire difference that you need to perform optimally. Why? 
because your physiology is responding. It's not that you're cognitively uh, trying to invoke a, an em empathetic response to the person who's injured that you cross by or run by. It's just how your physiology responds. And it happens even faster than your psychology. So first, in your case, we'd have to train your physiology before we could actually train your psychology. Okay, so can we like call my husband in for this? Can we get like a third line in here? And can I have you explain to him that all of my emotions, that's not a bad thing. I'm just wired that way. That's um, right. There's a there's an article you can you can read to him and highlight the pieces that represent you called the physiologically gifted child oh, and it's on my website yes. under publications. I'm gifted. And I love that. Yes, it's a gift. I mean, you wouldn't have this podcast with the huge following that you have of runners that listen to this podcast um, if you didn't have this gift. It's it's helped you become or or to be. Um, you know, in, an expert communicator because you feel the world and you can talk and you can relate. So, so it's a beautiful gift. Well, thank you. I do. I, I feel every feeling. So I'm going to start telling people I'm gifted. I really like that take on this. Um, so let's say that I have a really big race coming up. It's the one that I've trained for. I'm super excited and my body feels great. What are your best tips for getting my head in the game the day before the race or as I'm at the start line? Well, those are two different questions, right? The day before the race or yes. at the start line. So let's start with the day before the race. Day before the race, you, you really want to have a kind of calm, optimistic outlook. Um, and, and, and if you wanted to put together kind of a, a quick, kind of simple outline for, for how to prepare, I would say prepare three phrases for yourself that you can insert any time during the race. Some of the popular ones my athletes and I work on are, you've got this, you've done this before, you can do it again, you're in control, okay? And and I call those the go-to phrases. Uh, I met, and I'm trying to remember what his name, the runner who won the Boston Marathon. Um, Meb Yes, I met him of a year or two ago, and I said, um, what is it that, you know, I, I told him I was a sports psychologist and, and I said, Meb, what is it that you were thinking the entire race of the Boston Marathon? He said two things, Meb strong, Boston strong. And I just repeated it Aww. the whole race. Wow. <laughs> love it. Right. Well, I love him. He, I think he's everyone's favorite runner. Uh, <laughs> so good. Now we know what was in his head. I love you for yeah. sharing that. <laughs> yes. And I like to have athletes practice the night before the visualization of the start of the race, the middle of the race, and the end of the race. The, the first piece of the visualization is actually what you look like as if you're a third person watching yourself on a TV screen. And then the second visualization for each piece is what you feel like, what it feels like in your body, in your heart, in your muscles at the starting line or at the middle of the race at the, at the end, the desired state of what you want to feel like. Um, so three pieces, the self-talk, the breathing, and the visualization the night before. And, and then for the actual start of the race, what, what do you currently do, Allie, at, at the starting line? Um, I kind of just people watch. I breathe a lot. Um, 
Mm-hmm. I really, the start of the race is my favorite. I love being in the packed area with everyone. I love just kind of looking around and, and I always, that's when I feel the most joyful is when I'm at the start. I really love that sense of community. Um, so I actually try not to think about what's ahead of me when I'm at the start. I try to be very much in the present moment. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I like to just look around and see all the other runners. And Well, being being present is great. Comparing yourself, and I'm not saying you're, you compare yourself when you look around, but a lot of people do. And and that's one of the pieces I, I recommend being careful about not doing mm-hmm. is starting to compare yourself to others because when you look around, you start going, oh, that person's taller, shorter, their sneakers are newer there you know there's different processes that that um begin to take place almost automatically in your mind so um the the feeling the part of the community is great and i love that but channeling that energy a little bit more inwards so that you're you're in your own space at the start line you can still feel kind of the communal energy and internalize it but um, but being in your own space and, and just kind of a present mind and, and focusing on your process, what your feet feel like on the ground, uh, how your hands feel, uh, the shoulders, and, and just getting back into your body. Oh, I love that. Now I'm getting excited. I need to sign up for a race because I'm, I want to <laughs> use all these techniques. Okay, tell me about, so, so I was ready for this race. I trained, I have my mental game, and I blow it whatever that means maybe I miss my goal time by a minute maybe I miss it by 30 minutes either way I do not have the race that I trained for what would you tell me how do I bounce back because I'm pretty sure after that some people might feel a sense of like redemption I need to do it again I am someone who's going to feel crushed and like probably want to give up for a little while so what would you tell me in that case for you in particular it would be different than an athlete who wants to go out and seek redemption for you in particular, dealing with the disappointment, I'd, I'd want to just kind of normalize it and not not to dismiss it. Every every race is a learning experience, so we would we would talk about what what there was to embrace and take away as a learning experience for next time. But but then normalizing that that when you start to look at peak performance, there are lots of dips and ups. So, so then this dip becomes what I call a statistically appropriate aberration <laughs> and, and something that's a really normal part of the performance process and oftentimes happens before the next big breakthrough. So, so our, our process would be really to help you let go, not get too critical and, and use the positives from this race to help build you better for next time. Okay, I'm going to have you on speed dial for whenever this next race is. If it if it does go well, I will I will credit you. And if it doesn't, we're going to need to to book a couple sessions. Um, okay, so as I mentioned, I would love to talk a little bit about exercise addiction. Um, I find that I I never saw anyone for it, but I look back at myself a couple years ago, and I feel like with all the reading I've done everything I've seen, like I 100% believe that I was addicted to exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes you think that, Ellie? Well, and I would love for you to give your kind of definition of it. But when I look back, I, my day was validated by a workout. Mm-hmm. I did not take rest days. Um, and for me, it wasn't so much about calories in, calories out, as it was just exercise was something that I felt compelled to do and it felt like a compulsion Mm -hmm. more than something that I 
Like, I, I've always loved it, which is why it was kind of a slippery slope for me. Like, I started running and doing half marathons because I genuinely, and this is true to this day, I love, love, love running. I adore it. Mm-hmm. But it went from I adore it to I need to run more than I did the day before. Or, you know, mm-hmm. even if I wasn't training for anything, I always had to do more. And I was running in the morning, then going to three gym classes at night. Um and again, I never saw anyone for it. So I'm, you know, open to any diagnosis you may want to give me. Um, but I, I just I had a very unhealthy relationship with exercise for a very long time. And it just felt like something I really depended on for my happiness. Like if I wasn't able to squeeze in a workout, I was very anxious. And, it, you know, I would skip happy hours so I could go to the gym. And um, so I would I would love your take on exercise addiction and how you see it as a professional. Well, the exercise exercise addict has lost his or her balance. So exercise becomes overvalued compared to elements um, that widely give other people feelings of satisfaction, work, friends, family, community involvement. And when emotional connections are passed up in favor of additional hours of training, when injury, illness, and fatigue don't preempt a workout, and when all the free time is consumed by training, exercise addiction is the diagnosis. Some of the warning lights for addiction include withdrawal symptoms like anxiety, irritability, and depression that appear when you just can't work out. And to the addict, there is no exception to the rule. The more, the better. More training, more hours, more miles, more intensity. More is absolutely always better. And anything that interferes with the lust for more exercise is resented. The, one of the particular defining features of exercise addiction is exercising even when injured. And when one can't exercise is to feel feelings of melancholy, depression, or anxiety. Okay, so I am sitting here just nodding my head to all those things because those are all things I experienced. And I think one thing that I know made it hard for me as much as I'm like, yeah, I'm a strong, independent woman is we have social media now and you go for these really long runs every single day and you have people liking your photos about it. You have people saying, you know, it's very I, I very rarely see people saying, at least on Instagram, like, hey, you should back off because, of course, that's tough to do. It's always you're a badass or you're awesome or I want to be like that. So how do you handle that? Well, you take yourself off social media. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, what what you're describing, I mean, part of – so exercise addiction, when it's a primary diagnosis, is really craving the endorphin release, okay? And – and in the situation that you just described to me, there's there's likely a dopamine release that that occurs when someone likes your mm-hmm. 4.5 mile run tracked by Nike that's expressed on Facebook. So now we have some para- some very powerful uh, biochemicals running around the body that are amplifying tendencies for exercise addiction. Yeah. And I definitely I've felt it and I see it all the time that like, you know, even I I mean, I ran through so many injuries, not Mm -hmm. really serious ones, like never a stress fracture or anything. But like there were days that I would go for a seven mile run and my my shins were just aching. Like I knew I shouldn't be doing it, but I couldn't not do it. Mm. Um, So I'm curious from your perspective as a professional if I had actually sought you out, which of course I didn't do because I convinced myself there was nothing wrong, is step one just 
stop running, stop ex- like how do you I know addiction is addiction and and so I'm curious how you start treating something like exercise addiction. Well, it depends on the pathology because as I mentioned before, um, there are are different types of manifestations of the addiction and when exercise is taking to an extreme, it can be looked at as an addiction. And a primary exercise addiction, which is more common in males, usually develops in response to the pleasurable effects of endorphins that are released after or during the exercise. And primary exercise addicts become addicted to the body's own natural high, that endorphin release. Mm. Whereas secondary exercise addiction, which is more common amongst females, usually develops due to body image issues and occurs in conjunction with another disorder such as anorexia, bulimia, or depression. And this addiction alley to exercise is primary to control weight gain or loss and hence how their body appears to others. So treatment is really depends on the pathology of, of the exercise addiction. So another thing I would love to know is that, um, you know, I very much Maybe it's because I've gotten older. Maybe it's because I was sick for a long time. I very much have finally found a healthy relationship with exercise, which I am very grateful for. But I see, and again, I am not an expert, obviously. That's why we have you. But I do feel that I see so many signs of what I used to experience in so many of my friends these days. And I don't know what to do. Like, part of me wants to say, like, hey, I've been there. Like, and, and I just feel kind of lost. So I'm curious if you have any advice about sort of what to do when you see other people going down a similar path because I'm not just going to grab the mid run and say you're addicted stop because I know that wouldn't have worked for me so I'm sort of curious if you have any professional advice about how to handle that I think a real gentle way, especially if you don't know someone well, to get them motivated to see a professional is to talk about the really great benefits in a way that's not assigning a pathology or a diagnosis. So saying, hey, friend XYZ, you know, I'm seeing how much you like to exercise and, and talking a little bit about how working with a sports psychologist or even just a health counselor can help them exercise in a way that reduces burnout. And research, for instance, says that individuals who are driven more by intrinsic causes for working out than external outcomes will work out more consistently and are less likely to burn out. Um, but but just motivating them to, to seek a little help to optimize their training as opposed to trying to to send them to someone because they have a problem. Right. Oh, I love that. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I hope that mm. I'm, my guess is a lot of people listening are also nodding along right now. So um, one last thing that I would love to ask you about is, sure. and this kind of ties into that, but not necessarily. Do you find that many of the athletes that you work with or just athletes in general, um, whether recreational or professional, do you find that a lot of the pressure that they tend to feel is internal or is it coming from other sources? Like, is it coming from, you know, parental pressure or the pressure to, you know, I'm sure for professionals, it's, well, I have to win this game to renew my contract to support my family and buy this mansion. But also for everyday runners and athletes, where do you see most of the pressure coming from? It depends on the age, the experience level, the cause of, of the athlete's participation. Um, again, anxiety is the most prevalent kind of condition or, or challenge that I see 
with athletes and learning to deal with it at any age, whether it's that six-year-old or someone on the PGA Tour or an Olympian or an NBA player or a dancer who's a professional, anxiety manifests and impacts performance hugely. I, I tell everyone it can undo countless hours, even years of training. If you can't manage your emotions and your physiology, you simply can't perform at the level you've been trained to perform at. Um, so, so learning to manage anxiety, I think, is a very common and potent theme for athletes of any age or, or discipline. Okay, and I always say that was the last question, but I never actually mean it. Um, I'm curious, do you have any breathing techniques that you like? Is breathing something that you work on with your clients? And if so, um, are there any like quick breathing techniques you can give us? It absolutely is. Breathing is super helpful for optimizing the mind as well as the body. And for people that aren't able to get in to see someone who can work with them on their breathing, you can download all sorts of apps on the iPhone. Um, breath pacers, just if you go to your iPhone or, or your Android and, and download a pacer and set it to four seconds in, six seconds out. This is just a general ratio that optimizes the body's ability to let go, let go of what happened last, let go of extraneous or distracting thoughts, and to prime the body for performing at the peak. And a lot of people make the simplistic deduction that breathing is for relaxation. I had an NFL coach who, who was on my couch and he said, Doc, I don't, I, I don't want to be so calm that I can't amp up. And I said, that's not what we're doing here. If I wanted you to relax, I'd send you to the spa. <laughs> this, is, this is actually to amplify your body's ability to amp up or let go. It goes both ways as quickly as possible. And so when you breathe and you breathe regularly and you practice, your breathing, you, you simply strengthen your body's ability to more flexibly respond in the moment. That's interesting. I just tried to do the four in, six out, and uh -huh. that's hard. I feel like right now I'm doing like one in, one out. So, yeah. so, so you can <laughs> need to work on that. <laughs> and train your breathing just like you would any other kind of physical training for your body. Your heart is a muscle. It needs to be trained too. Awesome. Well, the way that we end things on the Alley on the Run show is it's called the Sprint to the Finish Round. So are you up for a little lightning round series of questions? Oh, my goodness. Oh, these are sure. fun. These aren't loaded sure. questions about like addiction and anxiety. These are the easy ones. Okay, okay let's go. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. All right. Dr. Lagos, we are sprinting to the finish. We have our head in the right place. What would your last meal on earth be? My last meal on earth? Something that made me feel healthy, happy, confident. It, it sounds funny, but I love spaghetti, oh, yeah. <laughs> tomato sauce, a big bowl of, of vegetables, and, uh, and maybe just a little hint of ice cream on the side. <laughs> I love it. And I think you are the first person to come on this show and say that you would have vegetables. So I applaud that. <laughs> Most people are like, they're like, well, I've been like, I have, I'm lactose intolerant. So I would eat a ton of dairy like I'm I'm on my way out so <laughs> well you know what's funny that's really truly how my mind thinks in terms of helping people helping to to align the balance in their body so even if it was my last day on earth I'd still want to live a life of balance that's awesome I love it what is your favorite movie my favorite movie oh um you know I have so many th that I love but but um I think this is particularly 
pertinent because it's a, a running show. I like Forrest Gump. Yay. Oh, love that. What What is your greatest fear? My greatest fear um, <laughs> about the world, about... Oh, that, that could probably be a separate episode, but you can take this in any direction you want. I'm open to it. <laughs> you know what? My, my greatest fear is, is, is that we live lives that our hearts are, are less involved in what we do. And, and, and so a lot of my work with, with athletes and peak performers is putting their heart back into it. So it's, it's, it's a double, double layered question and an answer. My fear is, is living a life without a heart or, or, or a world living with, without hearts. And, and my hope is to help instill more heart in this world. I love that. Um, Mm -hmm. what is the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? First thing is breathe. I get out my breath pacer and I breathe and I recommend everybody do it for 10 to 20 minutes, 20 minutes being better. It optimizes your entire day and it also sets the platform for for disciplined behavior. So I I shouldn't wake up and immediately go on Instagram. Got it. I'll work on that too. I have a lot of work to do after this episode. I have all these new things I need to try. Uh, What is the last thing you do before you close your eyes at night? Believe it or not, I breathe. Love that. Where is your favorite place you've ever gone for a run? Oh, my favorite place that I've ever... I'll tell you my favorite place in Manhattan that I love to run is right on the promenade in Battery Park. It's just gorgeous. You can take the promenade and, and run towards the Statue of Liberty, or you can take the promenade and run towards Chelsea Piers from Battery Park. And it, and it just reminds me of the beauty and the grandeur of the city and, and what the city stands for. I love that. And there are lots of public restrooms along the way, listeners. I can tell you where they all are. So highly recommend that route. All right. This is our loaded question. You're hosting a dinner party and you get to have five guests, living, dead, celebrity, whatever you want, animals. Who would your five guests be? Five. Oh, my goodness. Well, five. I, I think Oprah and Bill Clinton, who I've met on the golf course before. but oh, casual. I've, um but i'm so intrigued by his his mind and 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 his energy there bill clinton has a special energy (laughs) five guests and and this is my my lightning round (laughs) oprah and bill clinton i mean you could just call it at that and that's a pretty solid dinner party (laughs) (laughs) well i would hope there would be more um but but I may have to think a little further about that question. Okay, fair. You can always email me and I can add that in and we'll let Excellent. people know. Okay, who was your childhood celebrity crush? Kirk Cameron on Growing Pains. Love it, love <laughs> it. Who is your favorite runner? Oh, my favorite runner um, is someone I actually, I actually know, Joaquin Cruz. He's an 800 meter gold and silver medalist. He's, he's a champion athlete and, and a champion performer and just a champion person. Awesome. And Dr. Lagos, wrap this up for us. Give everyone a reason to run today. (laughs) Run with your heart and for your heart. I love it. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm super excited to have you and to learn from you. And I think that everyone out there is probably taking notes furiously. And we all thank you for that. Oh, it's been so much fun. Thank you, Allie. 
Now that is a wrap on episode 40. Thank you so much for tuning in and thank you to Dr. Lagos for sharing so much wisdom with us today. I hope you learned something from today's episode and if you did, let me know. I always welcome feedback of both the complimentary and constructive variety. So hit me up at AllieOnTheRun1 on Instagram and Twitter and make sure you're following the Allie on the Run Facebook page for all the latest podcast and blog updates. And if you are so inclined, please consider leaving a rating and review for the show on iTunes. That is the best way to help new listeners find the show. And I have some really exciting guests lined up. So let's make sure people are in the know and ready to tune in. To leave a rating and review, just go to the Alley on the Run podcast page on iTunes, click on ratings and reviews, and then you can click on all those little stars and write a review for the show. I hope you have had the best, sweatiest summer, and here's to a fun, fabulous, safe Labor Day weekend. I'll see you right back here next week, and as always, thanks for joining me on the run.